Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 29, it says, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. We always put our Christmas movies away after after the New Year's, and we don't pull them out again until the day after Thanksgiving when we set up our Christmas tree each year. Well, one of the movies that we watch is the movie The Santa Claus. And he is the new Santa Claus, but he's having a hard time coming to grips with it because he doesn't buy it. He's arguing with this little elf about it, and the elf makes a statement to him. He says, you don't understand. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. And I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, that's... Kind of a cool statement, actually. And I just, uh, it was interesting to me. I just thought about it for a little while. And believe me, the last thing I want to do is make believing in God look like it's believing on Santa Claus. I'm not comparing those two in any stretch of the way that way. But that one statement that was made within that movie, seeing is not believing, believing is seeing, I think that's a very true statement. When I look at it biblically, when I look at people coming to faith. Because even though there is a lot of evidence, and the Bible makes it clear, too, that faith Faith is, faith is about believing things we don't see. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the conviction of things not seen. So faith does, uh, is about believing something that we do not see. Now, that is not to say that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of evidence. I think if you look at the evidence for Jesus Christ, His life, His ministry, His resurrection from the dead, the truth of the gospel, the evidence is overwhelming. But I don't know that the evidence itself will bring us somebody to faith in Christ. I think it takes a miracle of God. I think, it, I think He has to open our eyes for us to be able to see that. Because a human heart can be obstinate, rebellious, stubborn against God. What we're going to see as we look into this passage, because we're going to look a little bit farther than what we read, is we're going to see that there's a couple things going on here. In fact, I think that the reason that Matthew uses records this miracle, because there's other miracles that Jesus did along the way, and there's other teaching moments that Jesus had. But Matthew records this one, where these two blind guys sitting along the side, and they're crying out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And if, if you read the other gospel accounts, he, he actually has somebody go get them and bring them over to him. And he says, what do you want me to do? And they said, we want to see. And then he restores their sight. Well, I think it fits into the greater scheme of things of what Jesus is doing as well. Because Jesus is going into Jerusalem. The very next thing that you see happen is what we celebrate every year, Palm Sunday, where Jesus goes riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, presenting himself as the king, and they miss it. Now, some people gather along, a crowd follows, and they yell, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they lay coats before him and palm branches before him and, and celebrate his arrival. Well, by the end of the week, they'll be hanging him on the cross. And the religious leaders that are there, they will stir up the crowds. And all this stuff happens before their eyes and they completely miss it. So I think that part of the reason that Matthew records this event is because it stands in direct contrast to the blindness of the nation of Israel as Jesus comes riding into town. In fact, I would label this, uh, the blind see and the seeing are blind. Because as we look at the passage, Jesus comes across these two blind people and they put their faith in Him and they are able to see. 
But Jesus is going to go on from there. He'll have that triumphal entry into town. And then Jesus is going to go into the temple and He's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to tip over the money tables, which He'd done earlier in His ministry as well. The people were in there and had it like a marketplace with selling pigeons and doves for sacrifices and, and selling animals for sacrifices, sheep. They turned it into kind of a flea market. And then as we look a little bit farther into chapter 21, and the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, what comes next is a bit of a surprise, right? I mean, it's not to us because we know the story. But it doesn't really fit when they saw They were there. They saw the wonderful things that he did, giving sight to the blind, making lame people be able to walk. When they saw that, and in the background, they're hearing the children that are dancing about the temple, singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David, just as they did with the palm branches on the way into town. When they saw all that, you'd think the next thing would say, they fell down and they worshipped, or they believed, or they... Something along those lines, right? But what does it say? They became indignant. Indignant. All the miracles of Christ happened right before their eyes, and they became indignant? They're indignant that He's causing the blind to see? They're indignant that He's causing the lame to walk? They're indignant that He is God with us? They're indignant. Now, put that against the backdrop of cleansing the temple. They weren't indignant when there were animals in the temple. They weren't indignant when you had the bleeding of sheep and the, and the, the pigeons flapping around and, and all that going on in the temple. They weren't indignant with the money changers ripping people off for changing their money into currency that, so that they could pay their temple tax. They weren't indignant with the flea market, basically, that they set up within the temple. But they're indignant with Jesus. That's blind. So we see a real contrast in the events here in the context of Matthew. We see these two blind people that are miraculously given their sight. And at the same time, we see the nation of Israel as a whole guided by their religious leaders. And they are people that can see, they saw the wonderful things that he did, and yet they're completely blind. You know, there is a blindness that plagues mankind. In fact, we see it right right off the beginning in the, of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John chapter 3 gives us a little bit more insight as to why we didn't recognize him. It says, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so the wrong things that we do, the sinful behaviors that people have, keep them from coming to the light of Christ because they don't want to admit they're wrong. They don't want to have to turn away from their sins. So that causes blindness in our life. In Matthew chapter 13, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. You see, it's exactly the same thing that we're seeing happen in this passage. The religious leaders would see the miracles of Jesus right before their eyes. They would hear His teaching and they would turn around. Remember back in Matthew chapters 10 and 11 and 12, we saw what was their conclusion? He has a devil. He's doing this by the power of the devil. It's not God. 
So even with it right in front of their face, they were completely blinded. In fact, Jesus on many different occasions within the Gospel of Matthew would call the religious leaders blind. In Matthew 15, verse 14, we saw them, uh, him say, Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both of them fall into the pit. In Matthew chapter 23, which we're headed toward, he's going to pronounce seven different woes to these people. And he says, woe to you blind guides in verse 16. And then in verse 24 of the same chapter, he'll say, you blind guides straining out a gnat so that you may swallow a camel. Well, Israel definitely has experienced a level of blindness. They, they did not recognize Christ as their Messiah. There were individuals that did, but as a nation, they did not. When the Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3 about the nation of Israel, he said it's, it's like when Moses, when Moses would go up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and then he would come back down. When he'd go up and he'd be before God, God's glory and him being in God's presence is kind of like, well, summer's come to an end and the tans go away pretty quick, do they not? But at the beginning of the summer, when you're starting to spend more time outside, we've got longer daylight, hotter sun, your skin gets darker, you get tan from that. Well, the same way with Moses, he was 40 days with God on the mountain. When he came down from that, the Bible says that he radiated the glory of God. Just from being in God's presence, he just kind of soaked that up. And then when he came down off the mountain, he radiated that. And the children of Israel were kind of freaked out about that. And so they said, cover it up, you're scaring us. And so they put, made a veil for him to put over his face to hide that glory of God so that they wouldn't feel so uncomfortable about it. Crazy that they'd want to cover up the glory of God, but they did. Taken off from there in, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, but their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So the Apostle Paul is writing and he says, you know what, the nation of Israel is, can, is still blinded. It's like this veil, the veil that Moses, when he brought down the Ten Commandments, there's a veil there. He says to this day, when they still read the Ten Commandments, when they still read the law, they read Moses' writings, there's like a veil is still there. They don't see it. They're blinded to it. He also mentioned something like that in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, it says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And what he's talking about there is he says, Israel in their hardness of heart did not accept their Messiah. They're going to. They're going to in the end times. But in their hardening of their heart, they did not accept the Messiah and so you know what that did? It opened it up to the Gentiles. Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and then the apostles would take his ministry not just to them, but on out to the Samaritans and to the Gentile world. But the blindness does not just affect Israel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not just talking about Jewish people this time. He says all unbelievers. It's 2 Corinthians. So he's writing to churches in the city of Corinth, which is a pagan society. And he says, you know what? Satan is at work blinding unbelievers, trying to keep them from seeing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With all that, with all of our human blindness with all the partial hardening of Israel, with uh, Satan trying to keep unbelievers' minds blinded to the truth of Jesus Christ, 
how do these two blind guys get a C? And that's what we want to look at today. We're going to look at three ingredients to saving faith. Now, I would be the first to tell you that every time you see somebody healed in the Bible does not mean they're eternally saved. Sometimes the people came to Jesus for, for a healing. I think that he gave them what they were asking for at the moment, and that was a healing. And it did not necessarily mean that, the, that they had experienced salvation at that point, although I do think it is what happened here. And we'll get to that as we go through the passage a little bit. Well, as we look at them, then as an example of that, let's look at these three ingredients to saving faith. The first ingredient of saving faith is that saving faith is understanding. And the reason that I point to that is I see the, the, the beg and the call of these people. They're, these two blind people are along the road and they hear that Jesus is nearby. And so they start calling out and they call out for him to have mercy on them. And it says, son of Son of David. That's an important statement right there. It's not that they don't know who he is. That is a statement of faith in who Christ is. When they refer to him as a son of David, they're looking back into the Old Testament. The Old Testament is made up of some covenants that are very important to the children of Israel. The covenant of Abraham, for example. God gave a covenant with Abraham promising him that his descendants would be his chosen people. Whoever blesses them, I will bless. Whoever curses them, I will curse. That was the promise given to Abraham. There's another covenant given to David. When David was a king of Israel, well, David would be given a covenant. And that would be that David's descendants would sit upon God's throne. When the Messiah comes, when this king, this savior comes, he's going to have to be related to Abraham, obviously, because that's God's chosen people. And he's going to have to be related to David, because that's who's going to sit on David's throne. And that's why in Matthew chapter 1, as it looks at the genealogies, it says... Jesus, it connects him right back to David and back to Abraham. In John chapter 7, verse 42, it says, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So they were questioning it at the time. Is this, can this be the guy? And what are the, what are some of the things that we know about him? That he has to be of the offspring of David. The same way is true of, of our faith. Our faith has Content, And that's what I mean by uh, faith is, is understanding. And the ingredients of faith is understanding. There are some things that you have to know to be a person of faith. There's some things that you have to, you have to believe. There's content to that belief. Because we look at Second John chapter 7. Notice what it says. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not, do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. The point that John is making there is that, look, our faith, when we say we have faith, that we, that we are believers, we have to understand some things. There has to be something that we believe. There has to be a content to this belief. In Second John, there were people out there that were teaching that Jesus was a spiritual being, not a physical being. He did not come in, the, in a physical body. And the Apostle John, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these people that are saying that, they are deceivers. That what they're, they're believing is outside of belief in Jesus Christ. So there's a content to the gospel. In 1 John chapter 2, we see something very similar. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John uses a couple words there. He says, look, there's the truth and then there's the lie. And we've got to believe the truth. There is, there's content to this faith that we hold dear. I think of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 says that, that we're saved by the gospel. 
And then it goes on and defines the gospel. It says, what is the gospel? The gospel is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you know what? We cannot be inside the faith. We cannot be somebody that believes unless we understand a few things about God. We understand that Jesus came from God, that He is God in the flesh, born by the Virgin. We, we understand that He came physically and that He died physically and He rose again from the dead physically. There are certain things that you have to understand in order to be trusting in Jesus Christ. You know, in First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now notice the way that he uses the word faith here. He says some people will depart from the faith. And, and how will they depart from the faith? Well, they depart from the faith by listening to deceiving spirits, doctrines, which means teachings, teachings of demons. So in other words, they're going to stop believing what is true and start believing what is not true. Now, they can't genuinely have believed it to begin with or they wouldn't be able to make that decision. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But there is this thing called the faith. You see, the word faith in the Bible is used in a couple different ways. One of the ways that it is used is this way. It describes the content of the faith. Um, when he's saying that these people are going to depart from the faith, it means it's going to depart from the teachings, the truths that are embodied. So it's the content of that faith. We see it similarly in 2 Timothy chapter 6. It's used the same way. It says in verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So again, same things happening here. Some people are holding to these things over here which are contrary to the faith. In other words, the faith is a body of knowledge. It is a, it is a collection of truth that we believe. In that sense, the, the word faith is used to describe the content of what we're believing. Well, these two men that called out to Jesus... They had content to their faith. What were they believing? We don't know everything that we were believing, but we do know that they were believing that Jesus was the Son of David, who they were looking for as their Messiah. So they were declaring Jesus to be the Messiah that they were waiting for from God to deliver them. And that's who they were trusting in. That's who they were calling out to. So there's a content, there's an understanding there's another way that the word faith is used in the Bible as well. Their saving faith is dependent. Saving faith is dependent. They recognize their dependence upon God. Let me get back to that word faith for a moment, and then we'll kind of catch up where we're at. We said for one of the ways that the Bible uses the word faith is as a content, a body of knowledge, a body of truth. The other way the word faith is used is the dedication with which we hold to those truths, or how much you cling to that. Do you truly believe it? And that's what I want to deal with here because he says that they cried out to him, Son of David, and they said, Have mercy. Have mercy on me. So they're, they're not bringing anything else to the table. They're, they're coming to Jesus and they recognize that if we're going to see, it's going to be because of what He is able to provide for us. They're dependent on Him. They're not looking for a healing in some other way. Now, they probably have in the past. In fact, the Bible says in this passage that they're, they're leaving Jericho on their way down to Jerusalem. Jericho was kind of an oasis in the middle of a desert. And there was a, a balsam plant there that grew that provided a salve that they used to try to treat eye issues and blindness. 
which eye issues and blindness in ancient cultures like that were much more common than they are now. In fact, they're, they're still very common in undeveloped countries because eye irritations and, and bacteriums and stuff like that, you know, we, ha- we have the ability to kind of take care of a lot of those things, and so they don't result in blindness. In fact, there's a, what is it, um, like trachoma, Trachoma, I guess, is something that is usually very easily treated, but if untreated, it leads to blindness. Basically what it is, it's a, it's a scar that takes place on your eyelid, and it causes your eyelashes to curl down into the eye, and then your eyelashes rubbing on that eye over time will cause you to go blind. Well, in third world countries today and in ancient cultures, that's something that they had trouble with. They didn't understand the cures for those things, so that kind of thing happened more often. There also was uh, gonorrheal bacteria that many women carried but were, were carriers and not necessarily affected themselves but were passed on to their children at birth. And that also often caused blindness. And so Jericho, being situated where it was and having this balsam that they treated eyes with, probably attracted, they figured, quite a few blind people to the city of Jericho. So they wouldn't have been the only two blind people in the area. And I would imagine they probably were at Jericho for the purpose of some of that eye salve and some of that treatment, but it didn't work. And so they find themselves where most blind people found themselves was out along the road trying to catch the travelers on their way into town because if they're traveling, they're probably carrying more money than they usually do and try to catch them on the way into town before they spend their money. But they hear Jesus coming. And to him, they're not asking for money. And whereas from the average person, they would want money, he would say, we want, we want to be able to see. There's something that they're hanging on. There's something, there's a reason for their trust in Jesus Christ. There's a dependence there. You know what, that's what I didn't understand. You know, for, for a, a year and a half or so, I, I grew up, you know, not a Christian. I, didn't, I, I thought I was, I didn't really know what one was. But uh, then I, I met Lisa's family, and I started going to church with her and her family. And I thought it was interesting. And I just kind of figured that I always had an in with God, that you know He was fine with me. And so I thought that's what faith was. I thought faith was just that you believed in God. You believed, and what that meant was that He exists. I knew that He existed, so I figured I'm in. I'm good. I wasn't trusting Him for anything. I wasn't clinging to Him for anything. I didn't see a, a need for salvation. I would have recognized that I'd sinned. I figure everybody does that, but I haven't done it too bad, so I'm all right. There is no haven't done it too bad when you're measured before God, but that's just the way I thought about it. You know, I never really did understand Jesus. I knew that he was the Son of God. I knew that he died on the cross and that he rose again. I I knew that those things happened. I knew that that was true. But I didn't really understand what it had to do with me. What does it have to do with me? Until one day... When I recognized my sin before God and I realized that's why Jesus died on that cross, He died on that cross for me. He died in my place. He took my sin upon Himself. And then I realized, if I don't have Him, I go to hell. And you know what I did? I grasped Him with all the faith I had. I thought, I want Him. I need, I need that. Now see, now I'm believing for a reason. Now I'm clinging. Now I'm, now there, now I'm dependent. Now I'm dependent upon Him. There's something that if I don't have Him, I don't have it and I need it very badly. See, that's what these guys had. These guys were blind. They can't see. They said, we've tried the salve. doesn't work. And they're completely dependent upon Jesus for this miracle. And they're trusting Him for it. In fact, I love it. You look in, I think it was Mark. It was either Luke or Mark. Because both of them tell the same story. And they say, you know what? When this guy got up to go see Jesus, he threw his coat down on the ground. 
you know, we think of our lives, that's no big deal. I throw my coat down a lot of times to let go of it to do something else or whatever. But think about it. He's a blind guy. What's he going to do if he doesn't get his sight back? There's a big crowd and everything. He throws his coat down on the ground goes to Jesus. It's like, he, he just knows. <laughs> he's, he'll be able to find it. He's going to have eyes. He's going to be able to see when he's done. Or maybe he doesn't even care about the cloak anymore. He'll be able to buy a new one because he's going to be able to go to work because he's going to be able to see. His whole life is going to be changed enough that maybe that coat just isn't that important anymore. But you see, a cloak for them in those days was very important because it was what they would cover up with when they went to sleep. It survived. It, it it was it really was an important feature for somebody, especially a beggar that's out on the streets. These people were dependent upon Jesus. They were hanging on. Hebrews chapter eleven defines faith as this. Chapter eleven, verse six. It says, "Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards." Those who seek Him. You see, it's not just believing that He exists. That's part of it. I had that part of it. I knew that He existed. And that He rewards. I was not clinging to Him for that reward. I was not seeking Him for that reward. And what is the reward I'm talking about? Is the salvation. You see, these two blind men were clinging to Him for that reward. They were depending on Him for that reward. They knew without Him they had no sight. They continued to be beggars on the street. And that's what faith is. Faith is determined. Faith holds fast. It endures. Which brings us to our last point. We see in their life that saving faith is abiding. Now, how do I see that in the passage? I see it because it says, after Jesus heals them, in fact, in one of the Gospels, it tells them, He tells them, okay, go on your way. But they don't go on their way. It says, you know what they do? They follow Him. Now, in the other Gospels, it lists one of these guys by name. I don't know the other guy's name, but one of the guys that was healed right here is named Bartimaeus. Now, the faith that he had when he came before Jesus was an enduring faith because once Christ gave them what they were looking for, they continued to follow him. Their faith endured. In fact, I think that's why, and many commentators think that that's why we know his name. You think about that? Why do we know the name of this blind guy that got healed? We don't know the other guy's name. What's the name of the woman at the well that Jesus talked to and led to salvation? What's the name of the guy that was sitting by the pool that Jesus healed? What's, what's the name of one person that was cured of leprosy? What's the name of the centurion that came to Jesus to have his son healed? You realize there's a whole slew of people in the Bible that Jesus healed and did miracles for? And we don't know their names. Why Bartimaeus, this one blind guy? I don't know for certain, but I'm pretty certain that the reason we know his name is that he continued to follow. So when Luke goes to write about Jesus healing his blind guys, you know who that was? That was Bartimaeus. He knows him, or knows of him. Why? Because of this abiding faith. Because after he was healed, after he received his sight, he continued to follow Christ. And you know what? That's a picture of our salvation. When we have our eyes opened and we recognize our need for Christ and we embrace him through saving faith, we follow. That's just what we do. That, otherwise, there's no faith there. That's what the whole point of James chapter 2 is. Where he says, you say you have faith and I have works. I say, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by what I do. We, we follow or it's not genuine faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And notice what he says. He really emphasizes it here. He says, this is the gospel that I preached to you. You received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. So he's saying, this is the gospel which saves you, and it has done that, but notice what he says, if you hold fast the word that I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. He's saying, look, you've been saved, 
If. If what? If you're still holding fast to the gospel. If you're still following Christ. If you're still holding fast to Christ. Then you've been saved. Otherwise, he says, you've believed in vain. What does believing in vain mean? It means believing without a cause. Without, you're not dependent on anything. You're not hanging on anything. You're not clinging to anything. You've accepted it as a fact, but you're not trusting in Him. And that's not saving faith. Because saving faith in, endures. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. These people were undergoing some struggling, some suffering. If you read, you read chapter 10, you find that they were being persecuted. Their, their houses were being taken from them. Their goods were being confiscated. Some of them were imprisoned. Some were publicly humiliated. And he says, you're saved if you're still holding fast. It's as we, we commonly say here, faith is faithful. Faith abides. Faith endures. Faith overcomes. 